This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We had many headlines today. We talked about states and cities around the U.S. having a growing surplus of COVID-19 vaccines. And then you had that headline coming out of CNBC, specifically the CEO of Pfizer saying, what, we might need a third vaccine? Yeah, that's right. The CEO saying within a year, potentially need a third Mm -hmm. vaccine. It's something that we talked a lot and asked a lot of our guests about. What are the chances that this is something we are going to have to continue to inoculate ourselves against? Yeah, exactly. Part of kind of our annual taking care of ourselves. Also, don't forget that uh, late yesterday afternoon, uh, you had U.S. public health advisors concluding a meeting on J&J's COVID-19 vaccine without a vote, no vote, effectively extending that pause on its use while they seek more data on a rare clotting side effect. So let's get our daily check on COVID and the vaccine rollout. Dr. Anna Durbin is professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. She's on the phone in Maryland. Dr. Durbin, nice to have you here with us. How are you? And When you look out at the COVID and vaccine rollout horizon, how does it look to you? Well, thank you very much for having me today. I think we can look at the vaccine rollout really um, from the point of the United States and then globally, because I think we're in two very different circumstances, particularly with the pause on the J&J vaccine and then uh, the restrictions on use that Europe has put in place for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, so, so go ahead, divide it for us. The U.S., I'm assuming you're saying doing sure. pretty good and the rest of the world not so good? Exactly. In the U.S., we're very, very lucky to have options. We have the Moderna vaccine. We have the Pfizer vaccine. We have J&J, which has been um, given EUA but is currently on pause. And then we have a couple of other vaccines that are going to go before the FDA in the not-too-distant future, one of which is AstraZeneca. But the rest of the world has really... Um, has really depended heavily on different vaccines, on the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then, um, of course, there's the vaccine Sputnik V from Russia and then some inactivated vaccines that have been made in different countries. Um, And with the concerns about the clotting, although I will and I do want to emphasize that it's a very rare um, event, but it can be devastating, which is why I think it's appropriate that CDC and the advisory committees are sort of taking a pause and getting more information to help us better understand what's going on. But that has made less vaccine available um, here in the U.S., but also, I think, globally. Hey, uh, Dr. Durbin, I, I want to, we have a lot to cover here, and I really want to hit on this idea of when those who don't qualify for a vaccine will be able to get vaccinated, specifically children, because we learned today uh, from the uh, Mercury News out in California that Stanford is starting to test Pfizer's vaccine in babies and young children. It, does this look promising to you? It looks very promising. And I want to say also Moderna has those pediatric trials planned and has started as well, not quite as young as Pfizer, but still uh, in children. And I think that's very promising. I think our expectations are that we're going to start to see children being vaccinated probably late summer, early fall. Hmm. How young? How, how young six are months is what six they're months. testing. And, but it, it's, yeah, they but probably how, won't start in six months. Well, well, um, well yeah. 
Because, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering how, you know, non-pandemic vaccine trials go for children as young as six months. I mean, this is the type of thing that need, they need to be followed for a long period of time to make sure there aren't effects that, that come after years, right? Right. Well, you know, it's interesting this, you know, we this uh, the way we've been testing these vaccines in children is is the way we've been testing vaccines uh, in children all along. So we yeah. always with children, we're very, very careful and start um, testing in adults first for safety and then go down in age gradually looking at safety and then, of course, uh, immunogenicity. So this process is really not any different for the covid vaccines. Um, I think what's interesting is, of course, that we're starting vaccination in adults as opposed to children. Most vaccines were used to being given to children um, and we will proceed carefully. So the rollout will be, for instance, in adolescents and then going down to younger children, for instance, five to 12 years of age and then going down. We're not going to start in the six month old. Dr. Durbin, let me ask you, we've got about a minute and then we're going to do some news and we'll come back and continue with you. But I can't help but feel there are people coming up to you, maybe in others, and just saying, see, I told you we did this too fast. Look at what's going on with the J&J vaccine. What do you say to them? I just got about a minute here. Oh, I, I say this, this is showing us that our safety surveillance system works. So this is a very, very rare event, you know, one in a million. That's not going to be picked up in clinical trials. But what we do have is what we call post-licensure, post-use surveillance for safety. And it was picked up very quickly, you know, within a month of the EUA being given. So I think what this shows us is that our safety surveillance works. We're able to pick up a very, very rare event. We've, you know, looked at it. Safety experts have said, okay, let's take a step back. Let's pause. Let's get more information. And we'll proceed from there. So I say it shows that the system is working, that we picked it up. We're dealing with it. We're going to see what's happening and we'll proceed from there. Let's get right back to Dr. Anna Durbin, Professor of International Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joins us on the phone from Baltimore. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Durbin, I want to talk a little bit about data and numbers. We did just hear from Charlie, uh, from Dr. Amish Adalja, one of uh, your colleagues uh, at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He comes on Quick Take each week, and one thing that he's talked about is that we shouldn't necessarily judge things by the way that... Uh, the cases are going up still because it, it's not necessarily the right metric anymore because so many vulnerable populations have been inoculated. So even though we're seeing a rise in cases, we're actually not seeing a rise in deaths and potentially a, a fourth wave here. Um, what do you make of the fact that cases are going up, but but deaths are going down? Well, I think he's exactly right. And I think there's a couple things that we look at to sort of explain why the numbers of cases are going up. We've been in this pandemic a year. The vaccine rollout has Started, and I think people are, are becoming more optimistic and sort of seeing light at the end of the tunnel and going out, doing more, um, maybe wearing masks a little bit less. And then we also have the emergence, of course, of the B117 variant, particularly in Michigan, um, which we know is more transmissible. The good news is that most of the vulnerable population or uh, a great deal of the vulnerable population has been vaccinated. So we are seeing fewer deaths fewer hospitalizations, which is very, very good news. And I think that also always brings me back to when we talk about vaccine efficacy and, you know, people try to compare numbers. And I think what gets lost in some of that discussion is that what we're really trying to prevent is disease. We're trying to prevent severe disease, prevent hospitalization, prevent deaths. 
And I think as all adults move toward being vaccinated, we're really going to see that take effect. It does also feel like, Dr. Durbin, that the we're getting to a point where we have this toolkit of things to deal with the virus. Uh, we've got several vaccines, right, preventing people from getting the worst of COVID cases mm-hmm. and keeping them out of the hospitals. I mean, we've really come a long way in 13 months. We have come a tremendous way in, in 13 months. I think it's really unprecedented. And I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about um, what to do in a pandemic, what we've done right, what we've done wrong. I think how important leadership and messaging is around different public health practices. And it's interesting because I have a lot of colleagues and friends who say, even when the pandemic is over, they're going to wear a mask when they go to the grocery store because they saw the effect on influenza and some other things. So, you know, we've come a long way and um, it's, it's, we still have a ways to go, but I think I think we're going to get there. And I think the summer is going to look a lot better for everyone. There's this exclusive story that we talked about a little earlier by our own Anna Edney and Drew Armstrong talking about unused vaccines piling up across the U.S. as some regions resist. How do we get that last portion of Americans, those ones who are hesitant to get the vaccine? Yeah. And what happens if we don't? Let's start with what happens if we don't. Like what, what happens here? So I think what happens if we don't is we continue to see transmission. Um, We may see more variants arise. And I think what that's going to do is lead to um, requiring or or having to be vaccinated um, again, get a third shot um, or even, you know, a year from now, get another shot. Because as long as we have ongoing transmission, I think we're going to keep vaccinating those people who are willing to get vaccinated. And I think, you know, that's where we get to the global picture, the worldwide picture. Um, you know, the, the rest of the world's not going to be vaccinated for quite a while. And that's why I think uh, we are going to need a third shot, uh, a booster shot, if you will, because as long as the rest of the world is not vaccinated or as long as we have right. ongoing transmission, we're going to need vaccination. And probably, though, also every year, just got 30 seconds here. Yeah. Well, every year for a while until we control this pandemic and we'll see there may be emergence of other coronaviruses. But I think you're right. We'll be vaccinated for at least the next year or two. All right. Great to get some time with you. Thank you so much. Uh, I know you guys are all busy. Uh, Dr. Anna Durbin, she's professor of international health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies on the phone from Maryland. I like Mm -hmm. the idea of, uh, you know, thinking about this from the perspective of we don't have to get a booster every year for the rest of our lives. And, right. and maybe this is something we'll only have to do for a couple of years or even a year. Yeah, until the next virus. Oh, come on, Carol. I was going to end on a good note. <laughs> I'm a little off Yeah, you, you, you think a lot about that next <laughs> pandemic. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, President Biden is among the latest to ignite or reignite the global effort to create a united front to prevent multinational corporations from playing one country off against another. It's all about Tim dodging taxes. Yeah, their big question is, how do you do this in a way that everyone gets everyone around the world to work together and avoid what's been happening really since the 1980s? A kumbaya moment is what we need. Hey, this is a story in the magazine this week. Let's get more on it. Bloomberg Business Week Economics Editor Peter Coy on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Business Week Editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Jill, we love our tax stories here at Bloomberg. 
Yeah, and we love it so much at Business Week. We made this the international uh, cover this ah. week because I thought it was um, really an interesting insight into sort of a, a pretty significant change in, in the zeitgeist around corporate taxes. And um, what we've been seeing um, is sort of a, an unprecedented moment where rich nations and poor nations are, are sort of uh, getting on a similar page, which is we need to raise corporate taxes and uh, sort of end up penalizing those countries, the, the Ireland's of the world that attempt to sort of like set a lower bar. So, so Peter, talk to us more about this, this uh, race against uh, the uh, taxes going to zero. Right, sort of the race against the race to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, exactly, there you go. There's a natural tendency for countries to seek advantage by cutting rates because then companies will shift their profits to your jurisdiction and you'll be able to get something out of it. It might be a low rate, but it's better than you would have gotten if you it probably weren't there at all. Sometimes it's real operations, factories and so on, uh, which is semi-legit, but sometimes it's purely reported profits. Uh, it'll be like you'll, you'll say all your patents are in the Cayman Islands, which has a zero corporate income tax rate. And these games have been going on for years Governments have been trying to plug the holes, but the corporations uh, have smart tax lawyers, and every time one hole gets plugged, another one gets opened. So we've had this, as we say, race to the bottom going on for a long time, and cor corporate income tax revenue, it affects domestic tax rates as well, because you can't tax your own companies very highly if they're well aware that they can escape it by going abroad. So there's a, an impact on the sovereign government. Yeah, you call it a game of, of, of cat and mouse also. I'm wondering about incentives, though, Peter, because there is this incentive for, for one country to attract a, yeah. a business, of course. So how do you align incentives in a way that, that prevents companies or countries, excuse me, uh, from creating policies that undercut some sort of, 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 of international agreement? Well, first of all, we're, there's no rule that says you can't have a low tax rate. Uh, the, but what it does say is that they, they call it the guilty rule, which I love. It's, it's, it's spelled G-I-L-T-I, but it's pronounced guilty as in caught you cheating. Um, that if it's, uh, if it's intangible income, such as from patents, trademarks, so on, that, and it's in a low-tax jurisdiction, the, the U.S. or any other higher-tax jurisdiction can tax it up to a certain level above what the local jurisdiction chooses to tax. And once you have that in place, it sort of removes the incentive to move to the low-tax jurisdiction because the taxes are going to follow you wherever you go. So, Peter, the one big change here, obviously, is the Biden administration. Yes. And uh, I want to talk about that. And why don't we use Kimberly Clausing as a way to talk oh, yeah. about that? Who is she? Kimberly Clausing. I, I interviewed her for an article in 2017 kind of about this theme. But at the time... There wasn't a lot of progress, and she was sort of a voice crying in the wilderness. She was an economics professor at Reed College in Portland. She's city you know well, I believe, Joel. Uh, it's, it, it, and, and Reed is also, you know, the left of left. Yeah, it is. It's a kind of a lefty school. Uh, since then, she's moved to UCLA Law School in January, this January. Five days after she arrived there, she got the call from the White House or not the White House yet, but the incoming administration saying, we want you on our team at Treasury. So suddenly this, this person who was kind of, as uh, Joel says, uh, on the outside looking in, 
is very much on the inside looking out and helping make policy, testifying before Congress, and and helping pull the, the Biden administration, which under Trump had been sort of resisting some of the efforts by the OECD and the Group of 20, is now very much in concert with those other countries and with the poor countries as well. So there's 139 rich and poor countries together trying to come up with a joint policy. So, and how has the Biden approach been received abroad? It's, it's, it's been received well because there are a lot of countries that, you know, they may be engaged to the race to the, in the race to the bottom, but they don't like it. They'd much rather have a race to the top or at least some kind of stability. So, for example, the um, finance minister of France, Bruno Le Maire, um, has basically said, you know, this is looking like it could be a, uh, a revolution, a tax revolution. He, that's what he called it. Uh, so, yeah, the overall, this, they, they don't agree with everything the Biden administration wants to do, but they sense tonally that they're, they're more in, in sync than they have been in a long time. Well, I kidded coming into this, uh, Peter, that we need kind of a kumbaya moment when it comes to yeah. taxes globally. I feel like we're at just this time where it's just hard to get anything done and get everybody to cooperate on something. So likely that we do get, ultimately get something done? And how quickly I, if we it, do? I do believe that it's likely something is going to happen here. Mm. There, there have been previous efforts. Uh, there was another effort that was concluded in 2015 that went some of the way towards what we're getting at now. But they felt it wasn't enough, so they went back to the drawing board and they had the second effort, which is more comprehensive, more countries involved. So uh, there was a great quote from Pascal Saint-Amand, who was the director of the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration, who said, you know, there's no plan B if the project fails, but there is a plan C, chaos. <laughs> so, so, Peter, if if something does happen very briefly, yeah. we only have 30 seconds left. Yeah. Um, what does it mean for the bottom line of for U.S. companies and, and global companies? Are they going to see higher taxes or are they going to yeah. have to have these lawyers come in and, and find loopholes? Bottom, bottom line is that it, it won't be quite so easy to find loopholes. So taxes will go up uh, modestly. Uh, but but U.S. companies will uh, not be affected. U.S. headquarters multinationals will be less affected because they have harder, higher tax rates to start with. It's the um, companies that have been most effectively escaping taxation who will right. feel it the most, which does include some of U.S. companies. Well, it's a great read and something that certainly has caught everybody's attention, uh, anything with taxes. Um, Peter, thank you, thank you. Peter Coy, economics editor, the international cover of Bloomberg Business Week this week. And Joel Weber, our thanks to you as well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, we did have another IPO today this year. Also, it's been a busy IPO calendar. Mobile apps company AppLovin and existing shareholder KKR pricing an initial public offering at the midpoint of a marketed range, raising $2 billion, $80 a share. Stock began trading day, a little bit of a delayed open, and they did open uh, trading below their offering price. Right now, the stock at $64.50 a share, down about 20%. Let's get into, though, the business and what's ahead for AppLovin, the CEO and co founder Adam Ferrugi joins us now. He's on the phone from the NASDAQ. Adam, uh, nice to have you here with us. How are you? Thanks, thanks for having me. Doing well. Well, tell us a little bit about your <clears throat> company. And you guys didn't go the traditional route of kind of tapping VC money and venture funds. You went the leveraged loan market. Just tell us about your, your whole approach to bringing this company and building out this startup. 
Yeah, for sure. We, we built a technology platform to help app developers get their apps discovered. Mm-hmm. And we started in 2012 in market. We've been profitable ever since. And the business today drives our partners over 3 billion app installs to customers, the consumer. And we have software in the middle that does matching. Make sure the consumer discovers the best content. So wait, do me a favor, break it down, because I think somebody's still listening and like, I don't know this world that he's in. <laughs> Explain it. So if you work with a client, pick a client if you can, or just be generic, but what you might do for them. Well, let's say you built an app and you built this cool new game and you needed to find users for it. When we started, we built an app and we put it out in the app store and couldn't get it discovered. So we built this platform to let you go onto our platform, market your app to consumers, and then get them to understand what you're promoting and download the app and engage with it. We now see over 400 million daily active users Hmm. on our platform and we're matching them up with apps from our partners three billion times a year plus. How do consumers interact with the apps that your service recommends on a long-term basis, right? It's one thing, my phone is full of apps that I just do not use anymore, that I've downloaded once. What are the metrics that you have? Uh, it's the consumer sees the app through a, a commercial, typically anywhere from five to 30 seconds, think like a television commercial, highlighting what the app has to offer. Our software in the middle is matching up consumers that are going to become customers of that app developer. We do a great job of predicting what the consumer is actually going to be interested in, and we deliver performance to our advertisers. How do you do that in a way that uses data so that what I would see recommended to me might be different what Car- than what Carol sees recommended to her. What's the data that you're using? Yeah, what's interesting is in 2018, we expanded our platform by launching our own content. We publish and, and have bought over 200 games. These games are played by over 200 million people every single month. And then so that gives us great audience insights. We know what our customer is interested in. That data, which is our own engagement data through the customer accessing our games, feeds into our machine learning recommendation engine we call Axon, and that does the matchmaking. How does games tell you a lot about me or Tim? What tells us a lot are when someone transacts in one of our games. You just playing a game does not tell us a whole lot, but Mm -hmm. if you go and spend $10 on a game, Let's say one of our popular games is a game called Project Makeover. Skews heavily female. If you spend $10 in that game, our systems can figure out what other types of apps you're going to be likely to engage with. We can probably guess that you're going to also be interested in an e-commerce shopping app. Hmm. What what does innovation look like in this space in in terms of gaming? Focusing out on that rather than like an e-commerce shopping app. Because we have seen the rise of in-app purchases within games. But I mean, what makes makes a game stick? and, and, And then how do you continue to build on that? These games are great access points. So the, the mobile app ecosystem has given us the most affordable and accessible form of entertainment, which is this mobile gaming ecosystem. It's a $110 billion market, yeah. still growing 10% plus year over year. Uh, and these games continue to be live updated. So it's as if, if you play Project Makeover, every two weeks, our developer adds content to it for you to engage with. Just like a favorite TV show would add an episode every week, And so we see people engaging with our games for years. 
All right, I know you're not the CFO, I know you're not the financial guy, but are you a little disappointed <laughs> that the stock is below the offering price today? You're a smart guy, you know that this is not what you kind of hope for in a debut. Uh, look, we, we built a great company, we raised $2 billion successfully. We're much more long-term focused. Some of the best technology platform companies have had rough starts to the market as people start understanding why a platform is so powerful. We've got a business where we have 400 daily active users on our platform, and then we have our own content being engaged with by 200 million of them. And just you put these pieces together, you can create a lot of growth into the future. We're excited about our prospects. We're coming off our best growth year and best growth quarter of all time. And we're thinking about this business three, five years from now. Where is the stock going to be? Not today. Okay, Adam, once and for all, we have 30 seconds left. Answer the question, the origins of the company's name. Is it from the movie Superbad and McLovin or not? Maybe subconsciously. It's a good movie, but it was an $8 domain name. It did lead us to a great ticker, APP. We've been talking about this in the newsroom. Um, listen, come back and let us know uh, the growth metrics as you guys move forward, because we'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Uh, we've been talking with Adam Faruji. He is the CEO, co-founder of App Love, and making its debut today. Uh, stock, as I mentioned, down about 20% here in its first day of uh, being a publicly held company at 64.34 a share. Just a quick check. Let's see if we've got a market cap number. Uh, 13.5 billion in that wow. first day. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. Just a little more than nine minutes left in today's trading day. Let's get to it with Kelsey Barrow, fixed income portfolio manager, focusing on U.S. rates and inflation sectors at J.P. Morgan Asset Management on the phone from Hoboken, New Jersey. Kelsey, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. Uh, when you look at today's market, I thought it was an interesting one. We saw stocks up and we saw bonds up and yields backing off. Explain that to me, especially when it comes to the fixed income trade. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a really interesting day to be on with you. So thank you for having me, Carol and Tim. Uh, so I would say it was a data tsunami. Uh, we started out with record strong March retail sales. And one thing that stood out to me with the retail sales report is actually now every sector, every category within the report is above pre-COVID levels except for restaurants. So, of course, looking at that data and then looking at the 30-year Treasury yield, which is down eight basis points on the day, you'd think it'd be a disconnect. But for us, we see this as, as somewhat not surprising, particularly because if you think about last quarter for U.S. Treasury yields, it was the worst quarter for government bonds since the 1980s. So this is a bit of a consolidation trade here. The data is confirming the strong recovery. And now that we've gotten past the volatility-inducing events, the retail sales report, the CPI report, Chair Powell speaking earlier in the week, people are dipping their toes into the fixed income markets mm. again. So how much higher do interest rates go this year? So after this consolidation phase, we do think that yields are going to move higher over the balance of the year. 
Uh, we think that 2% on the 10-year is a reasonable stopping point to expect over, over a period of time once we see how the uh, recovery continues through the summer. Wait, let me go back to this. So you're saying that maybe we overreacted in terms of the fixed income market, the treasury market, uh, last quarter, and that's obviously was playing out in terms of the performance where we saw rates move up so much. And then now we're just kind of calming down and understanding, yeah, the economy is getting back on track. This is what we expected. And that was already priced into the fixed income market. Yeah. So I think that when I look back at the move in yield, uh, it was historic, about an 80 basis point rise uh, last quarter. And there is an opportunity for foreign investors particularly to look at our market and say things have gotten more attractive here from a valuation perspective, and maybe it's time that we put a, a few chips on the table. But, uh, is, but, really, but wait, wait, I want to just jump in. Is it a case that things have calmed down and this real worry about rates moving you know, well above 2%, inflation getting out of control, that's not happening? So I think you hit the nail on the head with the inflation conversation. So I think that we have been uh, concerned about where, what inflation would bring over the next few prints. And while the CPI report was strong, uh, I look at the six-month run rate on core CPI at 1.5%, and that's not runaway inflation, at least for now. I've been wondering about the role of fixed income in portfolios and, and if there is still that traditional need for it for many of your clients, uh, given what interest rates have done, what they're doing now, and, and where they're expected to go. Absolutely. And I think we all would wish yields are a little bit higher in this environment, but we do still see this as a positive environment for the fixed income markets, uh, particularly uh, when the Fed is still uh, a good backdrop and defaults are falling, which is a good good backdrop for credit spread. So where do you want to be along the curve here? So when I think about the Treasury curve, it has steepened a fair bit already, uh, but it could continue to steepen uh, as the economy recovers. So where you're going to get the most protection uh, is in the front end. The front end. So you want to do the shorter end here? Yes, because eventually we do see yields continuing to rise. Uh, and that's where you're going to get the protection. What is the time frame there? You say eventually, but 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 what are you forecasting? So we see 2% on the 10-year for year end. Um, and after a period of consolidation, uh, which is essentially what we think we're experiencing right now, the Fed is going to start talking about tapering. They've set the bar quite high to discuss tapering. Uh, we are all wondering what substantial progress actually means. We think it's going to mean a number of months of job growth. So the one million print we got last month, that's great. We're going to have to get a string more of those. And then they're going to start considering uh, where we're going to be on the path to normalization. Well, I mean, in general, do you feel like, um, Kelsey, things are kind of going maybe as we hoped. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of stimulus pumped into the economy, whether it's from fiscal policy, whether it's through the Fed uh, and easy money moving around here. But listen, this is what we wanted, right? We didn't want the economy to stay down for too long because then it's much more difficult to get up. Is it kind of recovering in a productive and uh, kind of normal and organized way so that we don't have to be worried necessarily about inflation getting out of control? 
Absolutely. Fiscal policy and monetary policymakers have done a great job. They have responded quickly. Um, in fact, when I look at the coal in GDP uh, during the, the, the depths of the crisis, it was around $2 trillion. The fiscal response has been more than double that hole. With infrastructure, it could be easily three times the original hole. So we are there to experience the recovery. It is coming through as we expected. Um, and at the same time, I think structurally, inflation can remain contained. So what do you say to a client who comes at you and says, I want to go all equities because I just don't see any opportunity in fixed income? And we only have about 30 seconds. Absolutely. Well, as I said before, I think we all wish yields are, were higher, but there's still a diversification benefit from being in fixed income. On the days where things are not going well, which would be not like today, but on a day when equities are struggling, uh, we still see value, uh, hedging value, and having some fixed income in a portfolio. Just quickly, 15, 20 seconds. Corporates, any, uh, what's your position there? So we are very comfortable with credit spreads at this time, particularly because we see default rates falling this year. In fact, when I look at the amount of defaults we've seen so far in the high yield market, it's about $2.3 billion. That's an annualized rate of just 0.6%, so significantly lower than what we experienced last year. Right. We just had a headline, JP Morgan itself setting a bond sale at $13 billion, the biggest ever for a bank. So uh, your own uh, company certainly out there uh, in the uh, credit market. Kelsey, thank you so much. Kelsey Barrow, she's Fixed Income Portfolio Manager, JP Morgan Asset Management on the phone from Hoboken, New Jersey. This week, Business Bloomberg is bliss in this, sir. A massive carol. This week, Business Bloomberg is bliss in this. Seven days later, I'm going to say that's the best attitude in the world. I'm going to say that's the best attitude in the world. I'm going to say that's the best attitude in the world. I'm going to say that's the best attitude in the world.